Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Andrew Porter's latest collection of short fiction, The Disappeared, is a masterclass in mood. Set mostly in the big cities of Texas, the characters of Porter's stories smoke by fire pits, talk through the night overlooking sagebrush, and drink until secrets are uncovered. Porter's characters are searchers, not for grails, but for a sense of purpose, for the thing that ties them to their families and communities, for the authentic self that may be buried just out of sight or may not exist at all. A cellist imagines life without making music as a tremor threatens her relationship to the instrument. In small-town New York, a man follows after his college friends as they marry and make a life in the restaurant world. But outside that platonic thruple, he has little understanding of himself. A curious film student becomes an obsession for both a husband and wife, who in the end know almost nothing about her. Bees burrow into a laundry room. A secret box of stolen items burns in the brain of a disgraced academic. Neighbors snack on chili peppers with one singular pepper untouched, too violently hot to ingest, too beautiful to destroy. Each story, perfectly crafted, emotionally resonant, interrogates the terrible irony that we are often the most lonesome when we are surrounded by our intimates. At once universal in their reach and wholly unique in their storytelling, the fiction of the disappeared feels like an invitation to the voyeur. Andrew Porter opens the window to the most interesting ordinary lives, and even an afternoon spent looking leaves the reader changed. These extraordinary stories are not to be missed. Andrew Porter is the author of the short story collection, The Theory of Light and Matter, which won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction. The novel, In Between Days, which was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection, the recipient of a Pushcart Prize and a fellowship from the James Michener Copernicus Foundation, Andrew's short stories have appeared in One Story, Plowshares, The Southern Review, The Three Penny Review, among many others. He has had his work read on NPR's Selected Shorts and twice selected as one of the Distinguished Stories of the Year by Best American Short Stories. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Porter is currently a professor of English and director of the Creative Writing Program at Trinity University in San Antonio. Welcome to Burn by Books, Andrew Porter. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Uh, these stories, wow. I, I, I am so glad they came across my desk because I really feel this is an extraordinary collection, both in its craft and in its um, sensibilities. I'm I'm interested as a as a non-Texan of how much Texas is a character here. And and that doesn't mean all the stories are set in in Texas, although most are, but even when sent el- set elsewhere, the characters are often from Texas or thinking about moving to Texas. 
imagining or despairing over Texas. But this isn't the Texas of the American imaginary or the pop culture Texas of television. Texas here is unexpected. This is a Texas populated by academics and cellists. Even the Alamo, when it shows up, is a surprise. Were you intent in some fashion in representing a fresh vision of Texas? I think so. I mean, I think um, this version of Texas and specifically San Antonio and Austin, um, which is where you know most of the stories kind of take place. And, and for people who don't know, those two cities are, are pretty close together, um, about an hour away from each other. So this kind of region of the country, I noticed when I was beginning to write the stories that would become this collection that, that they kept taking place in either San Antonio or Austin. And, and I, I, after I'd written a certain number, I just decided that this was going to be an element in the book, that this was going to be a geographically linked collection. And so, um, once I decided that I decided to really kind of lean into that and, um, and try to celebrate some of the things that I like about Texas. Um, you know, uh, I've lived here now 19 years, which is hard to believe, um, even though I grew up on the East Coast. And, and I wanted to kind of, um, yeah, put little details, foods, plants, um, trees, certain landmarks, things that, that I felt were kind of important to me um, into the book as a way of kind of, yeah, celebrating those aspects of, of, um, of Texas. But I will say that, um, it's, it's not, as you said, it's not kind of the, the traditional Texas that we think of. Um, and I don't know that this is really necessarily even a completely accurate reflection of like San Antonio or Austin. It's just kind of my, my world, (laughs) the world that I, that I kind of move around in, in these places. And so it's a very kind of particular take on, on this region, I guess. Yeah, it felt quite particular and and unique to the characters who were experiencing it. But I I liked how how freshed and refreshed this sense of Texas was. And boy, did it make me want to go out and get a bowl of pozole soup, <laughs> uh, which shows up in a couple of of stories and and a cold Modelo beer for sure. <laughs> in the in the tradition of pretty much all great American art, your stories are often about marriages in a state of collapse, decay, fizzling out, and every other form of dissolution. Almost all your marriages are unhappy, um, but they are unhappy in their own unique ways. What's the attraction to the marriage in demise? That's That's a great question. I mean, that was another thing that I began to notice as I was, as I was writing the stories. And I think that in this collection in particular, I was really interested in the way that some sort of kind of like outside force might impact a marriage. And it may be as something you noticed in reading the stories, there's often kind of some type of kind of um, outside element that comes into the marriage and disrupts it in some way, sometimes threatens it, um, uh, but certainly complicates it. And so I was really kind of intrigued by the way that marriages that, you know, in some way were kind of a few years underway, um, might suddenly be impacted by outside forces and particularly the types of kind of outside intrusions that might occur when one is 
you know, uh, in their, their forties. Right. Um, so that can be children. It could be, um, it could be a friendship. It could be a romantic interest. And so I wanted, you know, all of these marriages, as you notice, like they, conflicts already existed in them, but I wanted in this collection to really kind of explore how an outside force might complicate that, that existing conflict in some way. In a couple of the stories, it's art that is the, the conflict that bubbles up in a, in a marriage or a relationship. And I, I, I think that's a, a bit unusual. in if we think about the, the great dissolving marriages of American literature, uh, can you talk a little bit about how art can sometimes be a force that disables uh, relationships in your collection? Yeah. So, I mean, this was another thing that I noticed, again, as I was kind of choosing the stories that would make it into the collection and as I was assembling it, I really noticed that a lot of the stories that I felt strongly about including um, included artists um, at kind of various points in their career, various different types of artists. But I wanted to show characters who are kind of struggling with the types of conflicts that are particular to the artistic life. And to also kind of, as you said, to kind of show how these types of artistic conflicts might also impact the relationship that they're in. And yeah, I just, I think that I've always been just interested in artists as characters, um, you know, and, and thinking about, um, as, as you might've noticed in, in the collection, like, you know, characters at kind of, um, yeah, different points in their artistic life. You have the young kind of like, um, you know, incredibly talented phenom. You have the older artist who's kind of past their prime. Um, you have the kind of struggling artist who never quite lived up to their potential. You have like the hermit artist who just refuses to kind of interact with other artists. <laughs> <laughs> But, but they're all kind of different versions of living an artistic life. And many of those characters also are in relationships, right? And we see how whatever, they, whatever conflicts they might be going through with their art might also be impacting that, that romantic life. Mm. Tied to your depictions of, of marriages in crisis, uh, you also have a knack for kicking the reader in the parent-child Achilles heel. You, you do dwell in the tender areas of our love for and our fears about our children. You have a wonderfully pithy description of being a parent. You know how everyone tells you that becoming a parent will change you and all? Well, it does, of course, but it's not just the way people make you think it will. It doesn't fill some big void or something. It doesn't solve anything. It just makes things different, you know, sometimes better, sometimes worse, but mostly just different. How are the parents in your stories both enriched by their children, anxious, and deeply disappointed by them? Yeah. I mean, again, as with the kind of different depictions of different types of artists, um, knowing at a certain point that I was basically going to be writing about characters like in their thirties and forties or characters at a particular point in middle age. Um, I wanted to, to, to bring, uh, children into these stories and to show how, um, you know, parenthood might be impacting, um, these characters in different ways. 
And in, in particular, again, I wanted to show like different versions of, of people in their 40s dealing not just with children, but also with kind of the idea of children. You know, not all of the characters have children. Some of them have kind of willfully chosen not to have children or, um, who, or, or in some cases can't have children. But nevertheless, like the idea of parenthood and the possibility of children is something that kind of floats through all of their lives, right? And similarly with the parent characters, I just wanted to show like people dealing with parenthood in different ways um, and with different um, levels of success. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and some of them are, are better parents than others, I suppose. Um, some of them have a more complicated relationship to being a parent than others. Um, certainly the anxiety of parenthood was something I was very interested in exploring. Like um, in one of the stories, Breathe, you know, which is about a kind of almost like a near death type accident that a child has. And then mm-hmm. the anxiety that flows out of that, like in that particular story, I wanted to kind of capture a particular type of anxiety that I think a lot of parents experience at one point or another, um, and, and to kind of take it, take us through an evening with a couple dealing with that, that type of anxiety. And, and so those, yeah, those are some of the things I was kind of interested in, in exploring. Yeah, I love that story, Breathe, because you're both talking about a very big crisis thing, this almost drowning. But you're also talking about this like completely conventional fear that your child loves the other parent more. <laughs> and, and having those two come together in that story, I found very affecting. Yeah, that... Yeah, I wanted kind of the both of those things to be at play. I didn't think just the anxiety about the near drowning would be quite enough. I needed to complicate it a little bit. And so having that strained relationship between the father and son at the same time that the father is kind of fearing for the health of the son, I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, thanks for making me so anxious about uh, marriage. (laughs) Academia and its angsts loom large in several of these stories. Uh, In the story Silhouettes, a former psychology professor is denied tenure, and he harbors the suspicion that his friend in the department, Paul, may have been a deciding vote against him. Over the course of a dinner party, the importance of tenure comes to stand in for the nature of friendship itself, its invisible contours. You yourself are a professor at Trinity University in in San Antonio. Is academia just too ripe with drama to be ignored? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, um, it had to kind of get into the book a little bit, I think. You know, again, like dealing with, with, you know, focusing on characters at a certain stage in their life, dealing with various types of conflicts. One of those conflicts is obviously professional um, for a lot of these characters. And and so I want, yeah, I mean, I know the academic world and, you know, there are particular conflicts that I, that I think, um, you know, that are, are, you know, that are kind of specific to, to this world. And, and one is certainly like the anxiety over tenure, something that I've kind of experienced firsthand and also observed many friends and colleagues go through. And so with that story that you're alluding to, Silhouettes, you know, you have a character who's, who's been denied tenure 
and can't quite get past that fact and is trying to kind of figure out how it happened, who might be to blame. And of course, as I'm sure you well know, like, you know, you know, uh, the world of academia is, you know, it is kind of, it, it's easy to become quite paranoid <laughs> in that world. And, and, and I think, um, I wanted the character who was kind of cope dealing with that, but also kind of coping with the reality of what's happened to him and, you know, kind of like having to accept that he has to think of himself now in a different way, which mm. you know, I think is a really, can be a really devastating type of thing for someone to have to deal with at a certain age, right? I think when you're younger, it's easier to kind of rebound from those types of professional disappointments. But I think um, later on in life, it's more difficult. And particularly with, with academics, I think it can be really hard. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the profession itself treats, you know, tenure denial as, as essentially like death. Right. And so you are, you're sort of dead to that institution. You, you often have in the case of silhouettes, you know, the, the main character doesn't get another job in academia. Well, he does, but it's in the like marketing department and something, a job that he can't even explain what it is. <laughs> so there's, there's sort of this, like, uh, a, a total separation from the thing you were before. Yeah. And I think if you've kind of been def defined by this, this field or this area that, that in some cases might not, there, there might, you might, might not be taking any job skills from all of the work that you've done, you know, kind of put into this, your study of a particular field, you know, you're kind of, yeah, you're stuck. And I wanted him to write to be kind of hanging on to wanting to be part of that world by taking this job at a university that kind of kept him in the academic world, even though he's really not in it in the way that he once was or, or would like to be in. You're right. I mean, it's being denied tenure. It's, you know, you're kind of, yeah, it is like a death, right? And it, it, it comes with, I think, I'm sure a, a huge identity crisis, which is certainly what that character is going through. In the story Cello, a cellist, a cellist with a progressive tremor in her hand becomes obsessed with the idea of the true self, the substantive thing that lives beneath the surface of jobs and relationships and the mask of social character. She's not alone in this collection. Many of your characters are bent on discovering what they are at the root when all social pretension and niceties are stripped away. What is interesting to you about the idea of an atavistic true self? Yeah, you know, it's funny that that actually that there's a lecture that's kind of alluded to in the in the opening paragraph of this story where the, the couple in the story go to a lecture where another, you know, professor is lecturing on this idea of the true self. Is there such a thing as a true self? And kind of concludes that there really isn't, but but that nevertheless we're you know, it's the idea of a true self is important to us, right? And it's a kind of important concept. And that that was a lecture that actually <laughs> I attended that I'm <laughs> of a, a, a team taught course in which we had a visiting lecturer come in and give kind of a lecture that that was kind of the gist of it in a way. And um, I was really struck by that. And I, I, I decided that I wanted to use that as a kind of starting point, but it also felt connected by that point, I'd already started writing some of the stories in the book, and it felt con really connected to kind of some of the ideas that these characters are struggling with. And certainly a lot of them are, 
you know, their, their major crises of identity that many of them are going through, which again, I think is something that's particularly painful when you're, you know, in your forties, you know, to kind of be contending with, with issues of who am I at a point when you feel like you should have already figured that out. Right. And so I think Mm -hmm. that that was one of the appeals with this book is like, I don't know, I, I found, I found myself really empathizing with characters who were kind of at a point where they still hadn't answered that question for themselves. And, and, um, you know, I, I was just really intrigued and and really kind of felt for them. And there are quite a few in, in the in the story who, for various reasons, have kind of held on to a version of themselves that's maybe their, you know, the, ver- the who they were in their 20s, right? And are now having to kind of confront larger identity issues because they're older, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're at an age when when they need to start figuring these things out. You like to play with metaphors for secrets, the secrets we hide from our spouses and our friends and from ourselves. These manifest in the stories as bees building a nest inside a laundry room, a box of stolen trinkets under a former academic's bed, even the perfect pozole soup that only one man seems to know about. How do you like to craft secrets? Yeah, I, I've always loved secrets and stories. It's It goes back into my first book, there are lots of secrets. <laughs> uh, I just think that they're great ways to, to, on the one hand, just to kind of create conflict, but also a way to kind of, one way to explore characters. Like I'm intrigued by people who withhold information or hide things, right? I'm intrigued by people's secret lives, the lives that they don't show others. And one of the things that's always appealed to me about fiction is that it kind of allows you to show both things. You can show kind of a character's external life and how they interact with other characters. And you can show this other secret life and create a really interesting complexity there. Um, so to just to, you know, talk about one example that you alluded to with the, the, the again, the character who's been kind of denied tenure, um, in the story silhouettes, you know, he, he finds himself stealing, um, trinkets from the house of <laughs> this uh, person who he believes was partly responsible for him getting denied tenure. I, I loved in, that. <laughs> keeps it in this box under his bed. And and I thought, what an interesting like thing to be doing. But it also seemed to make sense psychologically that he's trying to take something from someone who's taken something from him or who he believes mm-hmm. in him. But also that it becomes a kind of hidden thing and, and almost a, a kind of shameful thing that he keeps out of sight, right? He's not necessarily taking full delight in this. He's also partly, he recognizes on some level that this is like a very strange and per, perhaps like self-destructive thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. There are several beautiful micro stories in The Disappeared. My favorite is Chili in which a man communes with his older artist neighbor by sampling some of the many chili peppers that she grows in the garden. The story ends with one long sentence that describes the short transcendence of life. 
in a year from then, Teresa would be diagnosed with breast cancer, and within two years, she'd be gone. But for some reason, whenever I think of her, I still think about that night, the sight of her sitting at her kitchen table by herself, drinking a cold beer and smoking a cigarette. She'd, she'd never quit. Staring at her beautiful red pepper as if it were the child she'd never had or a painting she'd always wanted to make. This tiny, beautiful thing so full of heat it might kill you. First of all, that sentence, I think a lot of people might cut one of their fingers off to write it, but I wonder what are the pleasures of working in this shortest of forms? Yeah, that was something that really, um, it kind of coincided with the writing of this story that I just became, for the first time, really kind of intrigued by the flash fiction form. And um, I just found myself suddenly reading a lot of, um, you know, collections of flash and kind of you know, anthologies of Flash. And at the same time, you know, I was kind of recognizing that that I was going to be setting this collection in San Antonio and Austin. And I thought, what an interesting way to kind of like enhance the feeling of setting in the book to kind of like write a series of short pieces that will kind of explore like the world of, of you know, of, of this book. And so a lot of those shorter pieces, um, Chile, which you mentioned, there's a story called Limes, Bazzoli. Um, they kind of began as just little like experiments for me where I, I decided to, I would choose like a word that connected in some way to the setting of San Antonio, like a word that reminded me of this setting or, or a thing in this setting that I love. So there's like Bazzoli as an example, right? And I would just use that one word as a kind of prompt and I would just sit down and, you know, in 20 minutes or so or half an hour, I would just write something very quickly. And I did a lot of those and some of them, many of them I threw out, <laughs> but a lot of them I kept and, um, and, and published and, and began to publish. And, and then some of them I decided I wanted to kind of include in this book, partly for the reason I said is to work as kind of like accents that, that kind of reveal certain things about the atmosphere or the setting of the book. And that also, in many cases, also touch on some of the larger themes in the book. So, um, a story like Chile, which you mentioned, like, yes, it's, it's focused on chili peppers and hot peppers, which are a big thing in San Antonio, but it's also kind of dealing with, you know, the, the artistic theme, the theme of loss, um, you know, the, you know, um, of memory of, mm -hmm. of regret, you know, some of these other larger themes that, that work through the larger stories. Several of your characters die from breast cancer and some, uh, quite young. They die off screen in the stories, sometimes distanced from the characters that loved them once upon a time. How do you balance the metaphoric power of cancer in fiction with its real world devastations? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, that was another thing that I kind of, again, subconsciously was putting into these stories. I think on some level, I I was... I was thinking about a lot of different types of disappearances and certainly a disappearance, you know, that that's, that's common for a lot of people in their forties is the, the disappearance of loved ones and cancer, you know, at least in terms of my, my own life and what I, my own family and kind of, um, 
and and friends and people I've lost has been kind of the, the chief reason. And so I think that naturally that that kind of was something that I that I um that I put into the stories. Yeah. And it works right as a kind of metaphor. But it's again, I mean, these are things that we're dealing with in our forties, right? Is like suddenly you're realizing like your body is is frail. <laughs> it's not mm. as strong as it once was. It's vulnerable. And you see people around you developing conditions, developing cancer, you know, um, having all sorts of issues that they didn't have 10 years earlier. To me, that observing those things, that was kind of mixed in with all of these other types of metaphorical disappearances that I was witnessing in, 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 uh, in my life and in the, the lives of people I, I knew. Well, speak for yourself. I'm just as strong and and healthy as I was. No, I'm not. <laughs> but I hate... was maybe not the right word. But you know, you feel you feel uh, not. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't feel quite as quite my 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 twenty year olds. Oh uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I read a review of the collection which described you as a master of of remorse and regret. And I have to say, I agree that these stories almost all have an undercurrent of of regret gu guiding them along. Do you agree? And are you drawn to the universality of of regret? Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree that it that's something I was very interested in in this book, and and also just probably in general in in fiction. Um, yeah, you know, I think again, like. I would say one of the things that I was most interested in writing uh, about in this book is kind of our relationship to different versions of ourselves. And, you know, as you get older, um, you have kind of more versions of yourself to kind of think back on your childhood self, your college self, your, your young, you know, kind of uh, out in the world, early 20s self and so forth. And I'm kind of um, intrigued about intrigued with with this idea of how do we reconcile our relationship with these different versions of who we once were versus who we are now and who we imagine we're going to be. And I think, you know, it's natural looking back on earlier versions of yourselves to have regrets, right? To, to, to think about things you might have done differently or wished you'd done differently. And I wanted to have characters who had some pretty significant regrets about things that they didn't do or decisions they made or choices they made. Um, I just find that conflict a particularly interesting one. And again, one that's really, really like prominent, I think, when you're in your 40s. Like that, that's a time when you kind of are looking around at what you've accomplished and and it's natural to kind of have regrets, right? Um, about where you, where you are now, even though you might be happy about a lot of things there, there, there are other things certainly that, that you wish you'd done differently. And, and you're also kind of looking ahead and thinking, well, what, how much time do I have left and what can I accomplish in that time? And, and that's another often opportunity for you to kind of feel some regret about where you are at this point. So I don't know. I just, I think I was just intrigued with, with characters having those feelings. And again, because a lot of the characters are artists, like it kind of lent itself also to that feeling. I think, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a very common emotion with all artists 
regardless of their their level of success you know boy is it that is so true <laughs> before i let you go i would love to know if you have any book recommendations for my listeners yeah i i, I mean i have so many in terms of like short story collections i i always recommend this book um by sarah Modric called um cities i've never lived in and it's just one of my very favorite collections. It was a collection I was thinking about a lot as I was writing this book. It was very much on my mind. Um, another collection that was really on my mind as I was reading this book is Stuart Dybeck's Coast of Chicago. That's an older book, but I, it's another one I always recommend. I, I'm a big fan of um, Cara Blue Adams' You Never Get It Back. Yeah, I interviewed her and I love that collection. Yeah, I love it too. And I, I recommend it to everyone. I think it's a really, just really compelling collection. It has some just gorgeous stories in it. And it, it also works really well as a whole. And, and, and so I hadn't, that wasn't a book I was reading as I was writing this one. I, I read it kind of after I finished it, but it's, it's one that's been on my mind a lot and that I, that I do recommend to a lot of people. Yeah, those three are all wonderful. Um, I have never heard of cities I've never lived in. Um, I, I love Stuart Dybeck, but I don't know that collection. So those two are, are going to be ones that I'll certainly turn to. And, and I hope that readers will, will take a look at these recommendations. But most importantly, I hope they will pick up The Disappeared, the stories by Andrew Porter, which are exemplary in so many ways. And you're going to want to spend all your time with the characters that he develops in this wonderful collection. So Andrew, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. It really was a pleasure. This was a great pleasure for me too as well, Chris. And, and as I mentioned to you before, I'm a huge fan of the, the podcast and we'll look forward to continuing to listen. Thank you for, for all that you do for the, the literary world. Uh, that, that means so much to me. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Andrew Porter for coming on to talk about the incredible stories in his collection, The Disappeared. You can find links to purchase The Disappeared and all of Andrew's recommended books at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. This will bring us more listeners and allow the show to grow. Next week, I'll welcome Jane Roper with her new amazing satire, The Society of Shame. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.